Welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information, and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, July 28th, we are studying Psalm 141. In today's text, David calls to the Lord. He turns his eyes toward his God, asking that he would be protected from evil that would lead his heart and from evildoers who would try to trap him. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. He is also the assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Great to be with you, Pastor Apple. So we get started today. Pastor Hemmer, talk to us in general about the Psalms. What is their place within the life of Christians? So the, within the life of Christians, the the Psalter, the collection of Psalms, serves as a prayer book and and also a hymnal combined together, sort of sung prayer. And they're collected from, from various authors, David being uh, chief among them, having written uh, more of the Psalms than anyone else. Um, but they they uh, they take on a place within the worshiping life of, of God's people as they gather. So they give words to our prayer, they allow us to articulate those those unspoken sort of unknown requests. They teach us to pray, and they they teach us in in the variety of of uh, psalms that we have. They teach us how to how to approach God in in times of joy, in times of distress, um, how to deal with enemies, how to deal with good fortune and bad fortune, um, they really, they give word to those sort of unspoken groans. They are a means by which the Spirit interprets our, our longings and puts them into words with which we can approach the Father. With those that's in mind as the psalm being a prayer book, a hymnal for us as Christians, how does that point us to Jesus? Where do we see him in the psalms? Well, every Jesus himself says, you search the Scriptures because you think you have in them eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. So every, every word of the Scriptures points us to Jesus, testifies of him, and not just him generically, but him, the, the crucified, risen, ascended, will return Lord. Um, so we find a variety of ways that, that the Psalms point us to Christ and him crucified. Um, here we have a psalm written by David. David is often uh, a type of Christ in the Old Testament, and we'll talk some more about that as we get into the text of the psalm. Jesus is our advocate who sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for us, and we can understand that the way in which he intercedes for us is with the, the written Word of God. So 
it's it's not wrong to believe that he is praying the psalms for us. These are the things that he is praying for his his brothers and sisters, those for whose sake he became flesh. So we have we have both his the the comfort that he is praying for us and also we have the example of of his prayer for us. And so the psalms then give words so that we might join him we might join our brothers and sisters in his church in approaching the heavenly father for the sake of his son jesus and then and then you'll find various other things that weave their way throughout the psalms ways in which the the cross you'll you'll find a strong theology of the cross woven throughout the psalms um you'll you'll find little little snippets of wisdom here and there um, that remind us that Jesus is the incarnate Logos, the incarnate Word of God. So uh, the Psalms are really, really rich in their Christology and and point us to Christ in, in a variety of ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very helpful, Pastor Hemmer. So talk to us more specifically about Psalm 141. It is listed in the superscription that it is a Psalm of David. Is there any historical background or context that we can discern for this Psalm? Well, uh, the footnote in the study Bible says that this may be uh, a, a psalm that David wrote in the time when he was exiled from Jerusalem, fleeing uh, to save his life, fleeing from his son Absalom, um, and and the reason uh, that he's fleeing, the reason Absalom wants wants to kill him and and take over the throne. Uh, Absalom feels scorned because he's not allowed into David's presence after Absalom had Ammon killed uh, because Absalom wanted Ammon, another one of David's sons, wanted his wife. So here, here David's in the predicament of one of his sons has killed another son, and and now that son is turning the people of Israel against David, and then marching into Jerusalem in order to kill David, so David has to flee from Jerusalem. So I think that that makes quite a bit of sense, um, and it fits with a lot of the themes of the psalm that, that we'll unpack. Sort of, David is, is without the ordinary means by which God's people approach him in, in the sacrificial liturgical system, in, in the rites that would have... Uh, unfolded in the temple in Jerusalem atop Mount Zion, and while he is apart from those things, he asks for substitutes, in a sense. So, like we'll see in in the very uh, beginning of the psalm, without the evening sacrifice, without the incense, the smoke of the incense that arises before the Father, the sweet smoke that fills his nostrils and is a, a pleasant thing to him. Apart from that, David says, let my prayer rise before you as incense. So there does seem to be a disconnect. Um, so his inability to, to be in Jerusalem, to have access to um, the worship of God's, the corporate worship of God's people um, makes sense. And I think uh makes a strong case for this being, uh, that being the historical context for this psalm. Absolutely. Any other, any other information from the background, from the place in the Psalter that'll help us as we prepare to look at this text? It's okay if not. 
Yeah, not off the top of my head. That's okay. That's all right. No, that's that's fine. I just wanted to, to put it out there. So this is Psalm 141. For many of those who use the Lutheran service book regularly, I think much of this will, will be familiar, and I'm sure we'll talk about that over the course of our conversation. Here's the text. A Psalm of David. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me, and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. That's our text for today. That is Psalm 141. Pastor Hammer, you've already given us a suggested context for this during the time David is fleeing from Absalom. He doesn't have access to Jerusalem. With that, that kind of big picture view of the psalm in mind, is there a structure to this psalm? What are the, the general movements within it? Yeah, so uh, if we if we picture, you know, the, the king of Israel not having access to the gathering of God's people in worship, um, he begins with an approach to the Lord, um, a call upon the Lord, O Lord, um, for the the first couple of verses, um, asks that he might, even apart from the temple, even apart from the ordinary ways in which God's people were permitted and encouraged to approach him, that he might nevertheless be acceptable, that his prayer would be heard. Um, and then in the middle, um, you get a prayer for David himself to be guarded against wickedness. Um, you get in, starting at about verse, so that's three and four or so, um, with verse uh, five to seven, you have David not wanting to, um, so he just comes from the petition um, that he would not be numbered among the evildoers, and then he's willing to be rebuked by, corrected by a righteous man, so then um, with a note about um, the evil judges being thrown over the cliff, we'll come back to that later, um, and then he ends the psalm um, returning his gaze to the Lord. My eyes are toward you, and entrusts himself even in this time of exile, um, that the Lord would guard him from, from all the evildoers with their snares, so we sort of move from the address to the petition and then intensifying the petition um, with David's willingness to be corrected by a righteous man in order that he not be given over into the way of the evil, and then finally concludes all of it um, by addressing the Lord himself again um, and summarizing the petitions that he's laid out in, in the preceding verses. 
All right. So we've talked already about some of the context, which comes up in the first two verses, as you said. So take us into those verses. David calls upon the Lord and then asks for his prayer to be counted as incense and the lifting up of his hands as the evening sacrifice. Help us into some of the things we see in that first section. Yeah, so he, verse 1 begins, O Lord, I call upon you. Um, and this, this, like we said in the, in the beginning and in the, in the way the Psalms teach us how to pray, David has a crisis. He's, his life is in danger, and not just in danger from, from evildoers far away, outside, but in danger from, from one of his own family, from Absalom, and from the people uh, over whom David is king, those whose hearts Absalom has turned away from David to himself. So he's in, I mean, he's in a, a very serious situation, and, and instead of taking things into his own hands, instead of seeing himself as his own salvation, what does he do? O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Hurry to me. Um, let my voice and your ear find connection. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Um, which, of course, the Lord has promised to hear our prayers. Think of the, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer in the small catechism. Um, for he himself has promised to hear us and has promised to grant these petitions, uh, which are pleasing to himself. So David does exactly what we ought to do in times of peril, um, and that's not to um, not to to buckle down and try to deliver ourselves harder, but rather to turn immediately to the Lord and to lay to lay our concerns before Him, whether they're great or small. And so then in verse 2, here you get the sense that David is apart from the temple. In the temple, there would be a, a perpetual smoke of incense rising up, and the incense signifies the prayers of the saints. We find this all throughout Scripture as well, all the way back in Leviticus, where incense is commanded um, in the tabernacle up until um, the, the incense of, of the saints, the prayers ascending before the Lord in the book of Revelation. So incense and, and the wafting smoke of incense that rises up is, is a sign and a symbol for our prayers so that we understand our prayers rise up to heaven like smoke. Um, and just as the, the fragrance of incense is sweet, um, even though you get you know some folks who will protest about it, um, God always identifies it as as a sweet smell to Him, a pleasing aroma, and one one that fills the nose. And so much of of how God uh, turns towards someone in the Old Testament has to do with His face. Think of um, you know the ironic benediction: "The Lord look upon you; the Lord make His face to shine upon you; um, the Lord." Uh, turn his countenance towards you, so right, then, then his face is favorable. Other times when he gets angry, um, it, is, it is quite literally that, that his, his nose grows hot or grows red, um, is, is the, the poetic way of speaking about God's anger. So he'll either turn, turn his face toward you in, in mercy, in goodness, in favor, with a smile, uh, a warm fatherly countenance, or he will turn an angry face toward you, where his, his nose is red, um, is sort of the idiom in the Hebrew. Um, but here you have 
something that affects his nose, something that changes his nose. So the sweet smell of the incense is pleasing to him, and and it reminds him of something. Well, well, St. Paul writes to the Corinthians that we used to be the smell of death, but now we are to the Father the aroma of Christ. And, and there you have allusions to uh, you know, Jacob tricking, tricking his father by smelling like Esau, right? He dresses up like Esau. He puts, puts garb on, um, puts uh, goatskin on his arms so that he feels like Esau. And the father says, the smell is of my son Esau. Um, and so we, we do the same towards the father as well. In baptism, we're, we're covered up in Jesus. And so when the father looks at us, he smells and we smell to him as the fragrance of Jesus, the sacrifice of the Son in the place of sinners. Everything is good and right. So for the sake of Jesus, who is, in a sense, our incense before the Father, we are counted righteous, and he turns a smiling countenance towards us. Mm. So, that's, that's, yeah, that's fantastic. Keep going. Sorry. Well, we're, I mean, we're just scratching the surface of verse yeah. 2. Yeah. Um, David is a part— so he's, he's not there with the incense. Um, so he says, instead of incense, where it's understood that, that the prayers of God's people corporately, collectively, together, are rising just like this column of, of incense smoke before the Lord, um, and where at the close of every day, the incense mixed with the grain offering would be burnt together. Instead, he says, all I have is my prayer. Let my prayer be counted as the incense which rises before you, and the lifting up of my hands, a posture of prayer, as the evening sacrifice. So what he's asking there is that he would be counted as, as one of the people of God, even though he is apart from the community and the place where, where God has put his name and said, this is where I will meet my people and hear their prayers. So talk more about that interaction between the—and the best way I can think to put it is between the, the external, the being there with the people of God in Jerusalem, and the internal, the faith that David is expressing. Because I think sometimes within you know, the life of God's people in the Old Testament and with our lives still as Christians, we can overemphasize one or the other or, or put, put it wrong in one way or the other. So it's, it's possible to be there with the people of God— and not have faith, and that would be bad. But it's also possible to not even desire to want to be with the people of God and think, oh, you know, I've got Jesus in my heart, so I don't need to go be with the people of God. It seems like David has a good conception of keeping those two together, even though he can't fulfill that external one of being there. Talk more about that, that interaction. Yeah, well, we, we never do well when we try to pit the gifts of God against one another. And this, this would be an example exactly of that. If someone were to say, well, I have faith, therefore I don't, need the, I don't need the church. I don't need the assembly of believers as the Spirit draws them together. Um, I don't think anyone uh, would be so crass as to vocalize the opposite. Well, I, I have the church, right? What do I need the Lord's gift of faith for? But it would still be a kind of pitting the gifts of God against one another. Or if you were to say, you know, I'm, I'm baptized— what need do I have to receive the body and blood of Jesus? Or, I receive absolution, why, why go to the sacrament? Um, we never, it never benefits us 
in the slightest to pit the gifts of God against one another. So it's worthwhile to celebrate the uniqueness and the benefit of each one. For instance, when speaking of the sacraments, baptism, absolution, communion, the proclamation of the gospel, all means by which God delivers his grace, all means by which he is merciful and forgiving towards us, but each does so in, in a very unique way and, and deals with us as, as complex human beings in, in very different kinds of ways. So here we, we have a, an individual need to receive the Lord's gift of faith. Faith is not inherited. It's, it's not genetic. Um, each, each person needs to be able to confess by the, by the working of the Holy Spirit who gives the gift of faith that we cannot give to ourselves, Jesus Christ is Lord. And in calling him Lord, trusting in him for forgiveness as well. All of that is the content of the faith, a filial trust in Jesus for forgiveness. But we also, we need to be gathered together where the Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. So David, David here is kind of like one of your shut-ins who says, Pastor, I want to be in church, right? And that's, that's a very different mentality from the person who says, I will be in church when my Sunday morning is free, right? To one, um, the desire to be there every single Sunday where God gathers his people to dole out his gifts is there and it's strong, and yet the, the debilitating effects of aging or sickness or, or whatever have prevent that person from being there. On the other hand, a person um, who, who has every ability to be there nevertheless puts something else in that place, right? Whether it's travel or sports or you name, there's a whole litany of, of reasons, you know, sleeping in, to-do lists, projects, time with my kids, whatever. Um, and, and that person has the ability, but not, not the desire, not the will to be there. That is clearly sinful, but for, for the person from whom God has withheld the ability to get there, where the Spirit gathers his people, um, that, that then is not sinful not to be there. But this is why uh, all pastoral care is, is local, so that your pastor can, can bring the gifts of God to you, that he can bring uh, he can bring the temple to you. He can be a, a kind of uh, uh, roll up the tabernacle in, in his communion case and, and bring it to you. So that, that still then is the Spirit gathering the people of God together, albeit away from the normal places where he does that. So here David, David is like the shut-in who, you know, for the time being is exiled from Jerusalem, can't get there, would be there if he could, and settles for the next best thing, which is, do not, do not let my faith be extinguished in, in the absence, in, in my absence from the gathering of God's people. Yeah, that's very well said, Pastor Hammer. It's, it's very helpful. So David, David has the confidence as he prays, even apart from the place where he desires to be, that the Lord is hearing his prayer, that he is counting that prayer as incense before him. Just as God has promised, he is hearing the prayer, even as he desires to be with the people of God, offering those prayers together. 
you, you talked about the incense and the role of that within the prayers of the people of God. What about the the posture that David talks about, the lifting up of my hands? You know, when I teach my children to pray, I talk about folding hands. When I pray as the, the pastor in church, I do often lift my hands, at least in some sense. Why is that a gesture that's associated with prayer? Well, it, it was a, a priestly position uh, in the Old Testament. The priests would lift their hands in prayer, um, and we do the same thing now um, as pastors. Think, for instance, of the collect, which is, it's not the pastor's prayer, um, and so it's it's important that he not write the thing, but rather pray the words that he has received that have been given to him, um, because it's not his, and it's not to, not to come spontaneously from his heart in that moment or back in his study a few days ago. It is the prayer of the people, um, and, and that means the people uh, corporately, both uh, who are gathered there in that place, but also the people of the church throughout time and throughout space, right? And those are the ones who have entrusted these prayers to us. So as the, as the pastor collects the petitions of all the people, he then, uh, he, he, well, first of all, he turns around towards the congregation, and, and before he would dare do such an audacious thing, he gets butterflies in his stomach and his knees begin to knock, and so he says to them, right, he, he's sort of afraid of this, who dare approach a holy God on behalf of his people whom he loves and bring their petitions to him. So he turns around and he says, the Lord be with you, and they respond with the traditional and with thy spirit, which is the spirit given to you when you were ordained. So they say, this is what God has put you into this position for, the spirit is upon you, you, you have our permission and the authority from God to offer these prayers, our prayers to him on our behalf. And so then he turns back around towards the altar, turning his back on the people, not to signify that he is no longer with them, but to signify that, that he is he's with them now. He with them, they're all speaking in the same direction towards the altar, and he raises his hands as if, as if holding all the petitions of the people and offering them to God. So it is, I mean, it is a kind of mediating thing, right? Um, when, when, I pray, when I pray individually, how, how we hold our hands is, is uh, not commanded in Scripture, right, when we pray as Christians. But there is something to be said about the awkwardness uh, of putting your hands together, um, whether palm to palm or, or interlacing your fingers, um, and bowing your head as if to check out from all of the distractions around, as if to keep your hands from doing anything else, and to keep your, your eyes from looking upon anything else, and, and to keep your, your head from turning and, and being distracted by anything else. This is the, the classic posture of, of individual prayer, hands folded, eyes closed, head bowed, um, not because it's pleasing to God, but because it's disciplining to my flesh. But, but when praying corporately, um, it's, it's proper for, for the pastor to sort of hold his hands in between heaven and earth, as if he is, he's gathered up from the people the things that they bring before the Lord, and then, and then he brings them up before, before the Father's merciful throne and says, here's what we've got. Um, so yeah. that is it's sort of a posture for 
the, the one praying on behalf of others, um, and the posture for praying individually, even, even within a corporate setting, um, is hands folded, eyes closed, head bowed. Yeah, very, very helpful, Pastor Hammer, on both counts, both the private and corporate nature of prayer. We're going to keep looking at David's prayer here in Psalm 141 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Jeff Hemmer this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, July 28th. We're studying Psalm 141 with Pastor Jeff Hemmer. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, and is also the assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Hemmer, prior to the break, we looked at the first two verses. David continues in verse 3, asking the Lord to set a guard over his mouth to watch the door of his lips, and then he prays concerning his heart, that his heart would not be inclined to any evil. Take us into to David's prayer in those two verses. Yeah, so David is being pursued by an evil man, um, and and so his prayer here is that in in desiring for his life to be saved, that he would that he would not go the the way of Absalom, that it would not be repaying evil for evil, um, is another line of David. I think from some Psalm thirty four, right? That he would not give reviling for reviling. Um, so here, instead of being just like the evil man, and, and he knows, right, he knows that that would be his course. That's what he would do, except for the Lord who, who can set a watchman over his lips, who can guard his mouth, who can keep his heart from going in its natural inclination towards evil. Um, so very, very much in, in stark contrast to Absalom who's pursuing him, or, or for us, uh, in stark contrast to anyone who would do evil against us um, for, for the sake of, of the righteousness that God has given us, for the sake of the, the confession of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Instead of repaying evil for evil, David says, guard me, as if to say, I know what evil I, on my own, left to my own devices, would pursue. 
So talk talk about this connection in these verses three and four between the the mouth and the heart. It seems striking that that's the move. First he prays for the mouth, then his heart. Those I think Jesus connects those two. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And and Jesus says a similar thing, right? Um, it's not it's not the hands that defile a person, not what comes into the mouth, um, but rather what what proceeds out of the mouth is comes comes from the heart, and it's so it is it is the heart that is the, the seat of evil within man. That is to say, at the core of his being, he is a sinner in need of redemption. Um, there's no way Jesus, you know, he, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. I mean, that, that would be easy, but the problem is that the hand is not the source of sin. The eye is not the source of sin. The source of sin is is man's heart. And so he doesn't he doesn't just need a slight correction. He doesn't just need some some kind of minor physical alteration in order that he might be holy, in order that he might avoid sin. There might be a, a tangent here to speak about the modern movement in medicine to to alter one's body um, to try to change the core of a person which we find is, is futile, right? Jesus says what you need, it's, it's not those things um, that cause you to sin. It's, it's more towards the center. It's your heart. So if your heart causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. And that's the issue. Uh, repentance is really a kind of dying to oneself. But then we're, we're comforted by, you know, the, the promise that uh, the Lord gives to the prophet Ezekiel, that I will give you, I will, I will take out the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. So here David is confessing, right? His heart is on its own, only stone, and what he needs is a Lord who not only guards his heart from evil and stops the, the, the flow of sin from the heart through the mouth or from the heart to the hand or from the heart to the eye. Um, he, needs, he needs a Lord who guards at the very core of his being, his heart, from inclining to any evil. And then you see, yeah. right? So you've got the, you've got the heart in the middle. You move from uh, from mouth and lips to heart at the at the center, and then it moves back out again, right? So that with yeah. with the heart, one would not be occupied with with the deeds of the wicked, or company with the men who work iniquity, or even eating of their delicacies. So one is is guarded from the evil, so that he does not do what is evil. So talk more about that that matter of being in company with the men who work iniquity and eating of their delicacies. How does that factor into this? Well, uh, there there is uh, the the way is broad, which leads to destruction, um, and and in the company of those along that way, um, the the food is often better, right? So he presumably uh, there's there's a literal reality happening here. Where David is, he's apart from his home in Jerusalem, and he could, you know, he could return to Jerusalem. He could enjoy the the finest feasting there that would be fit for a king, um, but he would have to he would have to be company with with Absalom, and he would have to be complicit in Absalom's sin. So that's that's the the first layer meaning of the text. But then, as we dig down into it, right? I mean, 
it does seem like, if we look around, it does always seem like evildoers seem to flourish. They seem to have the finest delicacies, whatever they be, right? Whether it's, whether it's the, the favor of Caesar, uh, whether it's ill-gotten gain, whatever it is, there, there are delicacies that are withheld from us. The, some of the finer things of life are withheld from us when we choose the way of righteousness over the way of the evildoer. So David prays that his heart would not be inclined to that evil, that he would not be tempted toward that evil by the delicacies that they may be enjoying. Rather, rather, he, he chooses something different. And we get this transition there in verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. What is David saying there? Well, spare the rod, spoil the king. Uh, <laughs> if, if a righteous man... so. Strike there, I, I assume, is, is uh, figurative a bit. Um, I don't think anyone would, would raise his hand to discipline the king, but that is, that is what a rebuke does, what God with his law does by means of, of a righteous person. Um, and by here, righteous, we don't mean someone who always does what is correct, but one who is trusting in the Lord for forgiveness. And the other side of, of that filial trust in God for forgiveness, which uh, which is faith, the the converse of that that goes along with it all the time is repentance. So only the one who has repentance and faith is in a position to to discipline or speak the law to to another, right? Just like Jesus says, uh, before you can worry about the speck in your neighbor's eye, you have to worry about the log which is in your own. First, take out the log, that is, live in repentance and faith, and then you can deal with the the speck which is in your neighbor's eye. And I'd never, this is just a complete aside, um, never really thought about this before, but uh, a splinter of wood in your own eye will always look the size of a log, um, and a and a same size piece of wood in your neighbor's eyes will always, because you are always at a distance from him, look like a speck. So the point is never to be comparing, you know, oh, well, uh, you know, my sins are worse or your sins are worse. Like all sin damns, before God, every single sin hurts, um, renders us outside of uh, the kingdom of God. So the first step is to have one's own log splinter extracted from the eye and then and then with repentance and faith i can address the the splinter in my neighbor's eye and say i know a better way for eyes to function and that is without splinters or specks or logs in them hmm. so, so that's what david wants is is one who is one who is in the kingdom who has repentance and faith to be the one who rebukes him um who strikes him, rebukes him. It, in fact, it is good for him. Yeah. The, the rebuke of a righteous man is like oil for my head. And we know that oil, this is just so profound for David to be saying this, right? Mm-hmm. So oil, oil on the head was a means by which the priests were anointed and the kings were anointed. And so here you've got the anointed one saying that a means of anointing is for someone else to correct me for my sin. And so this, this would have taken place, right? This is, this is after David has experienced this firsthand, when he's, he's had the sin with Bathsheba, 
and tried to have Bathsheba's husband um, first implicated in David's sin, and then uh, Uriah proves to be righteous, and then tries tries to has him murdered. In fact. Um, at the expense of other lives as well. And the prophet Nathan comes to David and does exactly this, strikes strikes David hard with, with God's law, uh, tells this story, and then David says, ah, that guy, he's a scoundrel, he deserves to die. And Nathan says, striking with the law, you are the man. And so now, in hindsight, David knows what a blessing that is. In the moment, I can't imagine David, you know, gave Nathan a hug, thanked him for, for anointing him with the law and the correction that the law provides. Um, but certainly in hindsight, he knows that, that Nathan saved him. Nathan brought him back from being outside the kingdom of God to inside the kingdom of God, was the means by which the Spirit worked repentance and conversion even in David. Yeah, what a what a remarkable contrast, and I really appreciate the way you brought that out. David, as the anointed king of Israel, uh, desires this anointing of being rebuked, and recognizes, as you said, exactly what Nathan has done for him already at this point. What a what a fantastic thing! Now, as as David continues to pray, he says it at the end of verse five: "My prayer is continually against their evil deeds." And then verse 6, it gets a little—this is difficult to understand, I I think, but I'm looking forward to hearing what you say about verse 6. Their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. And then even in verse 7, more more language that just doesn't seem quite as clear to me as the rest of this psalm. So push us forward into at least what I think is a little more unclear territory. And just like you said at the beginning of our discussion— this is where I can no longer sing along with these words in my head, right? That's so right. Yeah. as we've been working our way through, uh, this this psalm is uh, used in evening prayer um, with a slightly different translation than the ESV we have here. So I always hear it uh, set to the tone of that canticle, um, but now there's there's no music in the background for <laughs> verses 6 and 7. That's right. Because they're, they are—we just have to say they are quite weird— um, and and I, I don't I don't have a really good explanation for them that I feel confident hanging my hat on. Um, but so what what does he mean uh, when their judges are thrown over the cliff? Um, well, ultimately, evil is always undone. Um, and even though it seems to hold sway, seems to be powerful, seems to have um, the the rule of, of temporal government behind it, um, eventually it's undone. Sometimes temporally, sometimes the evil rulers are overthrown by other evil rulers, sometimes evil rulers are overthrown by more righteous rulers um, willing to let the, the commands of God be the means by which they rule. But ultimately, in the end, all the evil princes are are fully and finally overthrown. And you see this playing out um, all throughout the book of Revelation with, with these uh, unimaginably potent rulers just toppled so easily, so dismissively by the Lord over and over again throughout Revelation, which is a, an encouragement to the people of God living under oppressive regimes where they they would expect persecution, would expect 
their their pastors to be martyred, their bishops to be martyred, because these are the things happening all around them. And so you see those all those evil regimes finally being toppled um, completely on the day of the Lord Jesus' return. So there is there's some of that going on at the beginning of, of verse 6. When the evil are finally thrown over the cliff, um, then they will hear my words, for they are pleasant. And what are the words of David? Where they are, they are the words of, of repentance and faith. They are both the words contained here, but also his words throughout the rest of the Psalter, his words of confession and confidence in a God who saves sinners, who lavishes mercy upon sinners, and a God who is praiseworthy because of his having saved sinners. So those, those are the words that endure, the words inspired by the Spirit, um, penned by uh, the authors of Scripture. Those are the words that endure. In a sense, David is saying here, um, the word of the Lord endures forever. Um, the testimony of his deeds, his faithfulness towards us, even the faithless, unfaithful ones, those words are pleasant and endure into eternity. Even when the, the evil judges are overthrown, what remains, it's the word. Hmm. Yeah. So then what happens in, in verse 7, the plowing and breaking of the earth being compared to the bones scattered at the mouth of Sheol? Is it time for a commercial break yet? <laughs> uh, man, 7 is a tough verse. Uh, I agree. I agree. So this happens to all of us, right? Um we all, we all come to death, and and Sheol is a word that means death. It is. It can mean a variety of things in Hebrew. It can mean a kind of nothingness. The dead go into nothingness. It could be a a kind of pit, um, or it could be uh, so a kind of pit, the dwelling of all the dead, or it can be uh, the place of punishment where uh, those who are apart from God are put when they die. Um, so we have all, all three of those running. I think here the most logical sense, because David includes all of us, all our bones are, are scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Um, I, I think the, the most logical reading here, then, is the place where all the dead go, and a way of saying death finally takes all of us, righteous and evil alike. Um, and so you have this image of, of a freshly plowed field, um, which has nothing, right? You plow the field, and, and nothing is growing in it if you've plowed it correctly. So, so also we are reduced down to absolutely nothing. But not a barren field, a freshly plowed field. And so even here you get, right, you get the, the imagery of, of the Lord raising up as a seed falls into the ground, and there dies, so must the Son of Man be put into the ground and in order that he might rise as well. And so here I think it's not a it's not a barren field. It's not a field that's lying fallow, but it's a field that's plowed. So are we at death on the very cusp of resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. I th I think that's I think that's gotta be there. I I've I've I saw some other suggestions that that's what's going on. And I, I think that's I think that's right. And and part of the reason is because of the way David does continue where he says, "My, but my eyes, my eyes are toward you, O God. And that, that mention of the eyes being toward God, I'm reminded of the way Job speaks 
in that passage, you know, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he says that I will see him for myself when his flesh is restored. And so it seems David has that same hope of the resurrection there as the psalm continues into verse 8. We, we should say, though, that it's a very unspoken hope, right? Mm-hmm. So we are reading that hope into it because we know the, the fuller story. And yeah. it's, it's sort of in its immediate meaning here, all, the, all people, evil and righteous alike, are rendered dead. Um, and so even, even then, if that's the case, even if David is saying, I know that Absalom and I will both die someday, um, all, all the evil judges and all the righteous kings eventually will die. Nevertheless, my eyes are turned toward the Lord. And we know, we know of course, that, that, that death is never the end. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a very explicit confession of the resurrection here, but I think, I think it's, it's fair to read that into the text, but it's also fair to, to just let the text say, everyone dies, um, what are you going to do about it? And then verse 8, either way, is a natural transition, because therefore my eyes are turned toward the Lord. And then we can say, why would our eyes be turned toward the Lord? Because he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's where you can start singing along again, is in verse 8. <laughs> yeah, it's a relief. That's right. So help us help us into this last movement of the psalm. David's eyes are toward the Lord. That's where his refuge is going to be. Keep us moving here. Yeah. So it's it's a return in a sense, um, a sort of summary here. These last three verses of the psalm, um, David's eyes are not turned toward himself, not trusting in himself to be his own refuge or his own defense. Um, my eyes are turned toward you. O God, uh, in you I seek refuge. Do not leave me defenseless. So he returns to uh, a temporal consideration. His life is being threatened by Absalom and, and his army as they are pursuing David. So defend me against those. Then verse 9, keep me from the trap they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Now this, this has sort of a double meaning to it. Because it's not just the the trap against his his physical life for the moment; it's rather the snares of the evildoers that would ensnare us eternally, that would ensnare us and and keep us out of God's gracious kingdom, that would ensnare us and prevent us from receiving his his forgiveness and his mercy. So he moves sort of from from the immediate temporal concern. With which he entrusts to the Lord, knowing that the Lord is good, to a bigger concern, not only save me now, but save me eternally, keep me from the snares of the wicked eternally. Um, and as they set the snares, let the wicked let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. And this the, we said at the beginning that the Psalms teach us how to pray. Um, and here I think they teach us how, to deal with those who are our enemies. Is it okay to ask for something evil to happen to our enemies? Well, that's what David does here. Um, he asks that, that they would, would fall into the snares that they set for him, that they would be caught in their own nets. And he doesn't take it upon himself to see that this is carried out against the wicked, against the evildoers, but 
He entrusts it to the Lord, knowing that the Lord guards those who are his. And so, if the Lord causes the evil to fall into their own snares, then it is a means by which he has saved and delivered David or us. And we don't, we don't rejoice at the evil that comes to the evildoers, but we rejoice at the deliverance that comes to God's people. And so this is, this is how we deal with evil and evildoers, is we entrust vengeance to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to him. He will repay. He holds all of those who belong to him in the palm of his hand. Um, he knows them. Our, as our eyes are ever toward him, his eyes are ever towards those whom he has called in the waters of baptism, whom he loves for the sake of his son. He's written their names into his book of life. So our eyes are towards him. His eyes are towards us. If he, if he delivers us from the evildoer by bringing the evildoer to repentance and into the Lord's church, thanks be to God, we'll sing a te deum. But if he delivers his church from, from the wicked around by destroying the evildoers, then thanks be to God, we'll still sing a te deum. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Pastor Henry, we've got about a minute left here. Help us to wrap things up on this psalm and help us to see, to see Jesus in Psalm 141. Yeah, well, uh, you, you'd see Jesus. Um, here David, David is being exiled from Jerusalem, and what does he do? He entrusts himself to the care of the Lord. And, and when Jesus is, I think even, we should have said more about this, right? Even on his way out of Jerusalem, David goes up to the Mount of Olives, and there he's weeping. And so you have a, a clear window to um, the new David, the, the eternal king of Israel, who is led out of Jerusalem, uh, sort of out of order, right? First, he's um, in the Garden of Gethsemane on, on the Mount of Olives, and there um, weeping, uh, praying, entrusting himself to his father, um, that if, if there's another way for mankind to be delivered, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the will of the Father is that the Son would give his life in the place of mankind. So the the life of David here is preaching Christ to us, the background context of the psalm. But then even, even within the psalm, right, um, it, it's still preaching Christ crucified to us. Because in the cross, every evildoer is finally undone. Every adversary against God's people and against his church is finally undone. The devil, with all of his power, is, is destroyed in the cross. His power is broken. He is a, a feeble, impotent adversary from the time of the Lord's crucifixion until the day of his return. He feels powerful now. Sometimes evil feels like it's breathing down our necks, but he is, he is broken because, because of Jesus' death. St. Michael and his angels have defeated the devil and his angels by, by the blood of the Lamb. So the way that we are delivered from evildoers is both in the cross, and finally in the day of Jesus' return. And if, if God has given us Jesus, then it is, it's, it's appropriate, more than appropriate, it's necessary for our eyes ever to be towards him. And towards him, we turn our eyes to the cross, and we know in the cross he's already worked our good and promised our eternal good better than we can desire or imagine. It's all there in the cross for us. 
Pastor Jeff Himmer is pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. He's also the assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. He's been helping us today to study Psalm 141. Pastor Himmer, thanks for being our guest today. Pleasure to be with you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 141, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.